Well, good morning, everyone. My thanks to Zach and team for leading us in worship and song. And now let's worship in the Word, shall we? Do you guys remember a pastor by the name of John Osteen as Joel's father? Do you guys remember him at all? Are you familiar with him? Remember when he used to hold up his Bible? And I wish I could remember how you did it. This is my Bible, right? I said it, it, it is... What is this? It says who I am, something like that. So it was cool what he did. I thought, I might pull that off this morning, but I don't think so. <laughs> but I do want to say this. We're in the series Unapologetic, and today we're going to talk about why we're unapologetic about the Scriptures. What a glorious theme, conversation to have. There's so much external evidence about the authenticity and reliability of the Scripture. I could tell you about the number of manuscripts that we have that are the Greek New Testament. I could tell you about the time that I was, the first time I got to go to Israel, I was 24 years old, and I stood in the shrine of the book, and they had the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they had the complete scroll of Isaiah, And all scholars, both secular and religious, date that scroll to at least 150 years before Christ. And guess what? Not one word was different than ours. So all the prophecies that are contained in that book were not altered by some medieval monk. But they're true. Probably the most compelling evidence externally of why this book is authentic and is the number of men and women that would give their lives, that gave their lives, so we could have this today. I think of the Reformers. I think of a man named Jan Hus. We've anglicized it to John Hus. He was a Czech priest. His crime was that he began to read the Bible. And as he began to read... What he discovered is that the teachings and the practices of the church did not align with the Scripture. So being the man of God that he was and true to his calling, he began to teach contradictory to what the church would teach. And as a result, he was arrested, tried, asked to recant. When he was asked to recant, this is what he said. He said, I would not, for a chapel of gold, retreat from the truth. We live in a post-Christian, post-modern era. We also live, would you not agree, in a post-truth era. Media constantly bombards us with dishonest Inaccurate allegations, denial of facts. But guess what? If we want to buy a car, we get Carfax, do we not? That was my joke for the day right there. <laughs> we want to know the truth, right? When we buy a car, when we enter a relationship, we want to know the truth about someone that we're considering a lifetime with. We hunger for honesty and truth. In fact, it's 
interesting the research that those that were born between 1995 and 2010, and we have some of those in here today, thank God for you. You're the truth, Jen, is what research indicates. You're looking for truth. Well, today we're going to talk about truth. How many times have you guys had this conversation? You were talking to someone about a particular topic or subject, and they said to you, well, that's your truth, but I have a different truth. Have any of you ever experienced that? Can I see your hands? What's that an appeal to? It's an appeal to personal experience. It says there's no objective truth revealed from God. You have your truth. I have my truth. They have their truth. Truth is all personal and relative. Jesus was on trial before Pilate. Maybe you remember the story. Pilate said to him, it's been said that you're the king of the Jews. Pilate said, are you a king? Don't you love how Jesus answered people? <laughs> he said, you said it. But then he says this, and beloved, I want you to listen to these words today because they echo through the ages. He said, for this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I've come into the world. Why? To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. I'm reminded before he left the earth, and he began to pray for us. He began to pray for those that were with him, the disciples. But his prayer, John 17, echoes through the ages as well. He's praying for us right now. You do realize that he's at the right hand of the Father. And he's praying for us. And this is what he says in the book of John. This was his prayer. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word. Is truth. So this morning, as we open this book of truth, let's look at what this book teaches about itself, and let's make some applications which I believe will help you in your journey, shall we? Our passage today is found in the book of Timothy, to Timothy, the letter to Timothy. Many think this is Paul's last writings. I believe it is. Some call it his last will and testament. He's writing to his beloved son in the faith. And we'll begin in chapter 3, verse 16. And in honor of reading God's word, if you're able, I invite you to stand as we read this word, the truth. I'd like you to read it out loud if you so choose because of the power that's contained in these words. No, no doubt the most important words that will be spoken in here today. Let's begin in verse 16. Father, thank you for blessing the reading, the hearing, the teaching, the understanding, the application of your timeless word. We are so grateful that you've left it for us. 
In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So Paul says, all Scripture is God-breathed. Such a fascinating word, theonoustos. I hope that impressed you about my knowledge of Greek. I've told my weak joke before about how I pass Greek. Thank you, Lottie. Not cum Lottie. (laughs) But what it means is that God literally has breathed life into this work. It's the same connotation of when he took the dust and breathed life into Adam. So this work of literature, which it is that, but it's unlike any other because it's alive. It's God-breathed. And God's the authority. He's the author. So it speaks with His authority. Scripture doesn't just contain the words of God. It is the Word of God. And because it's the Word of God, he goes on to say it's profitable, it's beneficial to us. And then look what it's beneficial uh, for. It's beneficial for teaching. Do you see that? For doctrine. For what we believe. And then look at the next two words. Reproof and correction. They go together. It says, and it will tell you when you've gone wrong and how to get back on track. And then look at the last. It's good for training in righteousness. It says, here's the way you can grow to maturity in Christ. Look at verse 17. That the man of God and man is gender neutral. It's not just men, it's women as well that the person of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. But Paul doesn't stop there. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom. Do you remember a time where your mom asked you to run an errand for you? Or to go get something. Do you guys remember those, those times? Well, my mom did as well, but there was a difference when she said, Michael Ray Hall? Yes, it was trouble. It wasn't a suggestion. <laughs> it was a charge. It was a command. Paul saying here to his beloved son in the faith, I charge you. This is a command that in the presence of God and Christ, and by the way, Timothy, they're looking on. And they're going to judge the living and the dead. And they're coming again. They're bringing the kingdom. So Timothy, listen up. This is my charge. And what is it? Preach the Word. Preach the Word. The word preach is such an interesting word. It has the idea that you're bringing a message from a king. Beloved church, unless you think this is for preachers only, guess what? No, it's not. It's for you and me. We have a message from a king. And we're charged 
to deliver that. So what word? Well, it's the one that Paul taught him about in verse 16 and 17. It's the word that is the God-breathed word. It's the word that's profitable. It's the teaching word. It's the reproving word. It's the correcting word. It's the training word. It's the word that makes us complete. It's the word that equips us for everything we will face in life. And equips us for everything God wants us to do. That's the word we are to teach. Verse 2. The next part. Be ready in season and out of season. Well, Paul's not talking about football season. That's another joke. I was <laughs> cert laugh here. Not going very good. No, he's talking about seasons of life. Have you ever woke up and wondered if you were a Christian in that morning? Is that just me? John Piper? He's talking about no matter what you feel like, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what circumstances you may be facing, no matter what the season is, do this. And then Paul says, look, if you preach and teach the Word, it will involve reproving, rebuking, and exhorting. Listen, beloved. If you go to a church where you've never heard a word that challenges you, that chastens you, that reproves you, that convicts you, that spurs you on, that corrects you, you're probably going to a church that doesn't preach the Word. Because that's what the Bible does. And then he tells us the tone and spirit of that. He says, do it with complete patience and teaching. Have you ever had somebody try to teach you something and they were exasperated with you? Is there any more dispiriting kind of experience than that? They're just exasperated with you. They have had it up to here. They're not sure you can learn it. Everything about them is dismissive towards you. How do you learn from somebody like that? Not very well. But listen, if you have a parent, if you have a teacher, if you have a pastor who says, look, come on now, you can do better than what you've been doing. You can learn this. I'm counting on you. I see more capacity in you. I see more opportunity. I see God's hope for you. We're in this together. I will hang with you until you get it. Let's stay 
in it. You can do it. That's what Paul's talking about. And then verse 3, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You see, Paul is giving a warning here. And doesn't his warning echo throughout the ages to us today and speak to the times and culture in which we live? Some folks today just say, I don't want to hear the truth of the Word anymore. Instead, I'd like you to tickle my ears and tell me that my passions are pleasing to God whether they are or not. And then verse 5. So Paul says, look, you're going to have those folks. But as for you, Timothy, be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Hutto Bible Church, that's for us today. Now, this would have been a sobering enough charge on its own. But when you see it in light of verses 6, 7, and 8, it's even more. Because Paul is saying, Timothy, the reason why I'm telling you this is because, verse 6, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. He's saying, Timothy, I'm about to die. They're going to put me to death. And the last thing I want to say to you on this earth is trust the Scripture. It's God-breathed. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Timothy, hang on to the Word. Preach the Word. In season and out of season, Timothy... Stand on the Word of God. So as we look at these passages and and the whole of of the Scripture, there's some things that I want to give you in your notes. It's not all-inclusive, but there are four things I want you to see about what the Bible teaches about itself. And first is the inerrancy of Scripture. It simply means this. The Bible is totally truthful. What Scripture says, God says. Here's the second. It's the clarity of Scripture. Scripture is clear. The Bible can be understood by all who read it, seeking God's help and being willing willing to follow its teachings. 
Now, it means you don't have to be a Bible scholar, but under the power of the Holy Spirit. And aren't we glad for the Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit was given to us by Jesus. It was the form at the formation of the church. He said, it's good for you that I go away, which was hard to believe. But the Holy Spirit is going to guide you and lead you and reveal all truth to you. So if, if you're a follower of Christ, this Holy Spirit is within you and you have a desire to obey. You can read the Bible and get the main message out of it. It just means the Bible is clear. Here's the third thing. The Scripture is necessary. The necessity of Scripture. The Bible is necessary for knowing the Gospel, for maintaining spiritual life, and for knowing God's will. In other words, you need the Scripture to teach you the Gospel. Some people will say, I can't read it. I understand that. But if you can hear it aloud, or if you can hear it spoken, it's the same thing. And then the fourth thing, the last thing, is the sufficiency of Scripture. What God has revealed to us in the Bible is enough for us to be saved, to obey Him completely, and face whatever life situation comes our way. When our pastor introduced this series a few weeks ago, he asked a question that I believe we should look at each week as we're in this series. He asked this, what would unapologetic loyalty to Christ and to His Word look like in this situation? In other words, being unapologetic about the Scriptures. Well, here's what I believe the answer to be. If you were unapologetically loyal to, loyal to Christ in His Word, you would believe these four things. You would believe that the Bible is totally truthful. You would believe that the Bible can be understood by all. You would believe that the Bible is necessary to understand the gospel. You would believe that the Bible is sufficient for everything you will face in your life. When it comes to marriage, there's some great helps. Reengage. Some authors give great, inspiring works. But all you need to know about marriage is contained in the scriptures. We don't need the Supreme Court, God bless them, to tell us when life begins. That should get a resounding amen, right? I mean, I love our spirit. The Scriptures tell us that, do they not? The Scripture teaches about life. We don't need critical race theory to teach us about race relations. God's given us all we need in the Word of God. I don't need some book to tell me about eternity. Maybe some people have been to heaven. I don't know. The Scripture tells me all I need to know about eternity. It's one story, beloved. From the first verse of Genesis chapter 1 to the 21st verse of Revelation 22, it's one story. It was progressively revealed in the Scripture. God had a redemptive plan for mankind to take us back to the garden. It's all about Jesus. I don't know about you, but when I look around, I, I, I look around in amazement these days and see some in pulpits who show up to teach us the Word or teach us the Gospel, but they're twisting and they're distorting and watering down the truth 
of God's Word. Well, I want to say to you today, church, that as long as God gives me breath, and I speak for our pastor as well, as long as He gives us breath, shall we just agree that by His grace we will never tamper or water down or distort the Word of God? By His grace, we will never apologize for believing the Bible to be inerrant. We will never apologize to believe in its clarity. We will never apologize for the necessity of Scripture. We will never apologize that the Scripture is sufficient. When I talked about Jesus' prayer for us, I'm reminded that He was still on earth and He was talking about sanctification. Sanctify them in your word, or in the word, your word, or truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctification happens here on earth. When we're in heaven, we don't need sanctification, right? So He's talking about the life we live right now. And I don't know about you guys, but sometimes this life gets pretty hard. Sometimes we face situations where we don't have an answer. And so when I think about what he's praying for us, and by the way, I want us to try to remember, and even as we move into communion in a few moments, I want us to remember right now that the Son of God is at the right hand of the Father praying for us. So as he's praying to sanctify us, I, I, I was wondering when I was writing this, like, what does that look like? What does that mean? How, how does that happen? And Jesus answers that because he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So what does it mean to abide in his word? I want to ask you guys this. And remember, we're in church. How many of you have ever committed to a Bible plan? You know, our pastor, I mean, he's, he's amazing. He's doing these shreds. And, but how many of you ever just committed, hey, I'm going to read the Bible one year, or, or whatever your reading plan is, but you got along in it, and somehow you just had trouble staying committed? Can I see your hands? Because I'm raising my hand because I've had a, right? Right, it happens sometimes, right? So how do we stay abiding in His Word? What are some of the things we can do, and I want to share with you, I've asked Becky to um, let me interview her briefly, and the reason I asked her this, and I know many of you have are committed to abiding in the Word, but I've lived with this little girl for 48 years, and I've never seen anybody that does it the way she does. So Becky, thank you, first of all. I know this is not your best thing. But let me ask you, what does it look like for you to abide in the Word? What, what practices or what, how has God led you in that journey? When I was probably 15 years old, my dad had always, he, he had these scriptures that he had memorized, and we heard them all the time, you know. And one of them was, study to show yourself approved, a workman of God that needs not to be ashamed, 
rightly dividing the word of truth. Well, he said it all the time, and I just, I was so, I was continually convicted by it. And so at the age of 15, I started um, reading my word. I didn't have any desire to read it at all. It was the last thing I wanted to do. I had no interest. I didn't know it. I couldn't understand what it said. And so I asked God to give me a love for his word, and he did. So uh, through the years, I um, have developed a, just different study patterns. It's looked different at every season. When you have children or if you're working full time, you're not going to have probably a great chunk of time to study God's word. Um, and a lot of times we replace it with the wrong thing, right? We choose a TV show over studying his word, but um, through different seasons, I've learned that um, it's good to meditate, to choose a, a portion of scripture, to really study, to mean what it, to see what it means, to see what God is saying. These words are uh, God's words breathed on a page, like Mike's been saying. And uh, why wouldn't we want to spend lots of time finding out what those are? Uh, he has lovingly written them down for us and given us a tutor in the Holy Spirit to show us exactly what the heart of God is and to make it uh, useful for us for our daily lives. So when the kids were little, sometimes I'd have to go in the closet and you know, find a chunk of time. These days, I have more time, and it's it's been wonderful. So, through the years, what has the impact of this practice, if you will, or this discipline, or the way of life, of abiding in the Word, what impact has that had on our marriage, on your parenting, on relationships, just life in general? Can you share a little bit with us about what that looks like? Well, I think the best way, because I, I knew this question ahead of time, but <laughs> the best way that I could think of it is when my when we were little, my dad hung wallpaper. And he was and still is, he's 100 years old, a perfectionist at what he does. So what he would do uh, to hang the wallpaper straight, because the house was, the houses were always wonky. I mean, 99% of the time, and if you have that 1%, you're lucky, um, the angles on the house are just not straight. And they're a little bit off at least, and that would make him crazy. So what he would do is he would hang a weighted string from the ceiling to get a true straight line. And then no matter how crazy the house was or how wonky the angles were, the line was always straight. And then from that straight line, he would hang the rest of the room. Some of you are shaking your heads. You know, old school. But um, anyway, that's what the Word of God is to me. When every other angle in my life is off, I know I can go to the Word of God and I can find that true straight line. And it has produced all kinds of wonderful things. It's saved all kinds of wonderful things. It's healed. Sometimes it's correction. Sometimes it's reproof. But I know that the one that wrote this book loves me more than anybody ever has or ever will. And I know he's faithful. And I've seen that to be true through his word, through that plumb line. That's good. Thank you so much. Appreciate that very much.
So the writer of the Proverbs encourages us in chapter 2 of the Proverbs to store up God's Word. Not just as an exercise so we can check the box, but just as Jesus prayed for us, for the, and He's still continuing to pray for us, we live on this earth, do we not? And so how do we get through this life in abundance and victory in spite of the tracks of battles that we all are experiencing? It's by storing up His Word, by searching and accepting and listening and applying. And some of the promises that Solomon gave in that chapter was that we would find the knowledge of God. We would find understanding. We would find victory. We would find protection. We would find that God Himself promises that He will keep His eye on you. Some of you may know the Christian artist Andre Crouch. I love his music. And he wrote a song when he was faced with a particularly difficult time in his life. It's called Through It All. Maybe you know the song. But the words go like this. He said, I've had many tears and sorrows. I've had questions for tomorrow. There's been times I didn't know right from wrong. Is that any of you? But in every situation, God gave blessed consolation that my trials come to only make me strong. He says, through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. And I've learned to depend upon His Word. Let us pray. Father, thank You for the timeless God-breathed, alive and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, Your Word. Lord, may Your Word today pierce and separate our souls and our spirits and pour into us and bring about change and correction and reproof, but encouragement and life and illumination, protection. May we just see that these are the words of God and that they're true. And I pray for every man and woman in here that Your Word would penetrate into their souls and bring life. It's in the name above all names that we pray, the name of Jesus. Amen. We're getting ready to enter into a time of communion of the Lord's Supper. Our worship team is going to lead us in a song as you come and take the elements and go back to your seat. Here's my request of you today as you get ready, as we get ready to participate in this glorious sacrament. I want you to consider for a moment, and I'm going to give you a few moments later, what does it mean to abide in Jesus? What does it mean to abide in His Word? Some of you are very familiar with those terms. 
It's well-traveled path for you. I praise God for that. Some of you, that may not be the case. But today, Jesus is calling us to abide in Him. He told us, if you abide in me, you're my disciples. So as we get ready to celebrate and remember Him, I want to ask you to consider abiding with Him for just a few moments. Would you do that, please? Let's stand and worship and come take the elements. You may be seated. The Apostle John wrote these profound words. Many of you know them. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And then the beautiful mystery, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Later on, John would write these words. He would say, speaking of Jesus, that which we've handled, touched, heard, seen. None of us have had that experience yet. But we believe those words to be true, do we not? So here's my ask for you. And just, just take a few moments as we get ready to celebrate and remember His life. I want you to abide with Him in your own space, in your own way. And whatever God's doing, you maybe He has some business that you need to deal with Him about. You have business with Him. Maybe you just want to rejoice in the things He's brought you through, through the mountaintops, in the valley. Whatever the case may be, I want to give you a few moments to abide with Him. And then I will come and lead us in this Lord's Supper. Take a few moments. Isn't abiding with Him such a sweet experience? On the night before He died, He took the bread and He broke it. And He said, this is My body which is broken for you. And, and as unfathomable as the mystery, the profound mystery and the reality is, He was the Word of God in flesh. His body was broken for us. We remember Him today. Take and eat. And then He took the cup, which symbolized to the Jew the Passover. But it was a type, was it not? The Passover was part of that progressive revelation. It was part of that story that led up God's redemptive plan for mankind to Jesus. And He said, now I'm here. I'm the Passover. I'm willingly going to shed my blood for you so that all your sins may be paid for and you can be restored to right relationship with God. Isn't that worthy of remembrance and worthy of celebrating? Take and drink. How could we ever say thanks, King Jesus, for the things You've done for us? Things undeserved, but yet You gave Your life 
for us. We remember you today. Would you stand and worship? We'll have elders and their wives here at the altar. And if you so desire to come and pray, share anything with us, we, it'd be an honor to get to visit with you, share with you. Everyone needs an anchor, do we not? An anchor, even if you're on the mountaintop, an anchor if you're in the valley. And thank God our anchor holds. And as you continue to abide in the words of Jesus, as you continue to abide in Him, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance to you this day and give you His peace. You are loved. And God bless you today. You're dismissed.